You're listening to Stories But Shorter. I'm your host, Cassie Jerkins. Today we have on, through a remote interview, Adam McOmber. Petit Trianon. If only Eleanor and I had remained in Paris that day, Anna Moberly writes in an unsent letter to her sister, dated October 3rd, 1901, our lives would not have been altered, not in such an unnatural way, at least. I would still be with my dear girl now, holding her as I once did. The letter, along with two calfskin diaries, filled with notes written in the finely looped hand of a schoolteacher, was recently discovered in an archive of the St. Hugh's School at Oxford. Have the dead suddenly begun to dream, a page in one of the diaries asks, or have they been dreaming all along? And is it possible to become ensnared in such a dream, like a gull in a fisherman's net? Moberly, a venerable matron, acted as headmistress at the girls' school for some 11 years. She was said at times to walk the marbled halls with an appearance of such loneliness that even the sunniest of girls were made to feel melancholy. Her gaze was always searching, looking for something that did not appear to exist. And then one day, the headmistress found Eleanor Jardin an elegant young woman from Somerset. How the two women met is a story lost to history. What is better known, of course, is that Jardin soon became Moberly's assistant. The two began a secret affair in February of 1900, meeting once or twice a week in a small rented room near the school. It's said they created a world together in that room quietly serving tea and reading books of poetry. For a time, they lived as any husband and wife, yet they were quiet in their actions so as not to be too harshly judged. Their trip to Paris in late August of 1901 was meant to provide an extended romantic escape, a time for the two women to be more fully at ease. Moberly's letter to her sister sheds new light not on the affair itself, but on the now infamous incident, often dismissed as a folet à deux, experienced at the Palace of Versailles. It's well known that both women provided an account of the events after their separation, but the newly discovered letter reveals details far more disconcerting than anything in the official reports. Eleanor had taken up a recent interest in the history of the revolution, Moberly writes, and despite the heat of late summer, my young friend persisted in her wish to visit the palace. She said she wanted to see how the king and queen had lived before their imprisonment and execution the kind of life that Madame de la Tour du Pin had called a laughing and dancing toward the precipice. And who was I to refuse my darling girl? 
Versailles itself, we soon discovered, was in a state of dreadful disrepair, looking more like a poorly painted stage set than a monument of historical significance. We walked together through the halls of Venus and Mars, the blue dining room where the court had once taken dinner, and the narrow apartments belonging to the servants. As evening came on, I said, we shouldn't tarry. We should, we should make our way into the garden. Perhaps there we'd find a more picturesque setting. Eleanor and I went arm and arm through the great doors of the mirror gallery, like two girls from a novel. Moberly writes that young Eleanor looked lovely in the dying light, auburn hair pulled into a loose bun and her gray dress so fresh and soft. As the two of them progressed, Eleanor perched a pair of spectacles on the bridge of her nose and read aloud from the Baedeker guidebook. On your left, she said, are the remains of the king's labyrinth, populated by bronze statues and hidden fountains. And just ahead is Marie Antoinette's famed refuge, Petit Trianon, a structure designed initially for Louis XV's mistress, Madame de Pompadour, which Antoinette quickly made her own. The young queen constructed marvelous follies in the Trianon Gardens, a rustic farm village with actors playing the roles of peasants, a false mountain where goats could graze, and a carousel of porcelain farm animals. It is said that when she was imprisoned, the queen often wept when she thought of Trianon. The whole of it, she said, was such a foolish dream. Moberly continues, Both Eleanor and I paused there on the stony path, for though we saw the remnants of the king's labyrinth, we did not see any sign of Petit Trianon or its itinerant follies. Eleanor said we must have simply met, missed the little palace though I could not imagine how. I was aware that Petit Trianon, despite its name, was an imposing structure, a grand neoclassical temple, complete with Corinthian columns and intricate Rococo moldings. The guidebook was most certainly mistaken in regards to the whereabouts of the building. But because I knew a search would please my Eleanor, I said, we should retrace our steps and look for the little palace. Circle round were the exact words I used. I've wondered since if that phrase might have acted as an incantation, causing the natural order of things to shift. For isn't it true that mages often draw circles in the sand to complete some spell? And don't witches too arrange themselves in circles on their Sabbath? Not some 20 paces after we'd made our circle, a lone female figure emerged from the tall hedges of the king's labyrinth. At first, I believed she was another tourist. Though thinking back on the encounter now, I find it difficult to say why I assumed such a thing. The woman walked with a certain stiffness in her gait. She was dressed in a pale and outdated garment. The crinoline of her, of her gown was yellowed with age. 
Her white blonde hair was bound in a loose braid, and she had a somber air about her. I did not see her face at first, or if I did, I don't recall. I remember thinking I should say something to the woman, perhaps make an apology, as Eleanor and I had been laughing a bit too loudly only a moment before. But I didn't have time to speak, as my dearest Eleanor was then pulling at me. She sensed something was amiss before I did. Maybe it was her study of the revolution that gave her a clue, or maybe it was simply because Eleanor so often understood things better than I. She knew, for instance, that our little apartment at Oxford would never last. Such dreams, she told me, they can't go on. One must always awaken. Come, Anna, she said in the garden, walk faster. But the heels of my boots made it difficult to walk quickly on the gravel path. And I wondered at any rate why we needed to hurry in the terrible heat of late August. That's when the trees before us began to change. I do not rightly know how to describe what occurred. I can only say the transformation didn't happen all at once, but by degrees, until eventually the trees appeared as if they had no thickness. They were flat, like images painted on a tapestry. Fruit hanging from the branches, oranges, I believe, looked not like spheres, but like dabs of color on an aging canvas. I thought I was having an attack in the heat. I gripped Eleanor's arm. Just come on, Anna, she whispered. Please, we mustn't let that woman catch up. It was then that the landscape, the flat trees bearing painted fruit, began to fold. I perceived what appeared to be a crease forming in the middle distance, a dark line drawing inward among the flattened trees. Eleanor and I were moving toward that crease at such a pace, I thought we'd soon be swallowed by it, just as the trees were swallowed. What lay beyond the fold I could not imagine. Despite Eleanor's pleadings for me not to do so, I looked back. I wanted to know if the woman from the hedge, the white interloper in the ruined gown, still followed us. I hoped she'd given up her pursuit. Certainly, I didn't want to be forced any closer to the odd black fold that had appeared in the landscape ahead. And it was then, when I looked back, that I saw the figure's face for the first time. Perhaps Eleanor had seen it earlier. That's why she told me to come away. For the face was no proper face at all. Instead, the woman's flesh had a fold in it, like the landscape, a kind of crease running down the center. The figure in the yellow dress had no eyes, no mouth. Her features were all lost. And still, she came for us, slowly, deliberately. I would learn later that the palace and its gardens were built upon what had once been swampland. Louis XIII had drained this swamp. The ground at Versailles was sacred to him. And I believe now it was this ancient swampland 
the environment that preceded Versailles that began to seep out of the fold that had formed in the middle distance. A greenish-black substance, a primordial liquid, appeared to leak ink-like into the sky and then onto the grounds themselves, staining all of it, changing the very nature of things. My own skirts were weighted down by the dampness. What on earth is this? I asked Eleanor. Some kind of storm? In response, she would only say, we've made a mistake, Anna, I don't know how. In later research, trying to make sense of the events of the day, I would learn that when the executioner cut off the head of Marie Antoinette at the guillotine in the Place de Grave, peasants rushed forward to dip slips of paper into her blood. They wanted the gore as a keepsake and in this mad jostling the wooden trough that contained the queen's head was overturned, spilling a great quantity of Antoinette's vital fluids into the dirt, creating what was described by one onlooker as a terrible dark swamp made of our queen's very essence. Here, the handwriting of Moberly's letter becomes increasingly erratic, nearly illegible, before the narrative ends abruptly. Sister, my dear, Moberly writes, it was there in the swamp that we finally discovered the palace we'd been searching for, the Queen's Petit Trianon, and I realized in horror that the little palace was not lost to history. All of it had come alive again, and it was impossibly transformed I could see the peasant village Marie Antoinette had built for herself, now a desperate medieval shanty town, replete with dark figures that shifted, humped and strange through the crooked streets. And there too was the carousel of farm animals hitched to a wheel. They were not made of porcelain as the guidebook suggested. Instead, the animals were all terribly alive bones protruded at sharp angles from flesh, and the beasts called out in pain as they struggled beneath their heavy yolks. On the horizon, a black mountain rose, the Queen's Mountain, an awful broken shape against the stained gray sky. And then finally, we saw Petit Trianon itself, but this was not the peaceful retreat I'd imagined. No, this was a black and swollen temple with tall reddish windows and terrible figures that moved within. Aristocrats in high pale wigs and gilded gowns. These men and women had been tortured. Eyes extracted from faces, blood clotting in the powder that lay upon their cheeks. One man carried his head like a lantern and a woman held a handful of her own broken teeth. When we came into view of Petit Trianon, the revenant that pursued us, the walking horror in white, began to call out in a voice unlike anything I'd ever heard, a high and unintelligible thing. The grotesque figures in the black palace gathered at the windows to gaze at her, the dead queen behind us, for that is what I believe she was, Marie Antoinette herself living in the gardens of her own deceased imagination, raised her arms, 
Her flesh was the color of stone, a petrifaction of life. She called to her court. She screamed for them. It was only a few steps more before I stumbled, falling into a damp low place in the earth. I thought for certain I was finished. The queen's court would pour from Petit Trianon. They would fall upon me. When Eleanor turned to help, I told her she must go. She must hurry on, make her way out of this place. She did as I asked, blind with fear, and the dead queen followed, pallid arms outstretched. Hours later, I finally found my beloved girl. Eleanor was still drenched in the black waters of the swamp. Her limp body was curled in the shadows beneath a lemon tree, face pressed against its trunk. We were on the outskirts of the grounds. The garden had seemingly returned to its previous natural state. Eleanor, I said breathlessly, what happened? How did you find safety? Eleanor made no response. We must go back to Paris, I said. We must tell someone what has happened to us. Finally, she turned to look at me, eyes dull. She did not move. My dearest, I said. Eleanor studied my face. It was as if she no longer quite recognized me. Tell someone, she said finally. Who would we tell? Anyone, I said. Anyone who will listen. Anna, she whispered. We made a mistake. But we've done nothing wrong, I said. We only have to leave the garden, go back to the city. She shook her head. This isn't the sort of dream that lets you go. This is the sort of dream that stays. And with that, Eleanor pressed her face against the lemon tree, and she looked at me no longer. So what inspired you to write this story? So it's a true story, actually. Um, so I always write uh, from, well, I often write from history. Uh, and I'm interested in queer history. Um, so this is the story of two women um, who were said to experience uh, a time slip at Versailles. I mean, that is what they reported. Um, but commentators commentators later said, you know, that they, they were having a folet à deux, a kind of madness of two um, that was in some way, I think people believe caused by their sexuality. So I just kind of found that really, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. So do you do you seek maybe like uh, like queer historic stories and then you just happen to find this one that was about time slipping or <laughs> did you go looking for like <laughs> paranormal queer stories or <laughs> I well I write speculative fiction so I think my my eye is often drawn to things that I can make into um the paranormal yes mm -hmm. yeah yeah I because some of your other work is, yeah, spooky. So, yeah, I was curious, like, um, yeah, do you just feel like you're just drawn to both uh, types of writing and then you just like to merge them in your own way? Yep, yep. Um, yeah, my new, my new novel um, is, it's called Jesus and John, and uh, it is... It is about the relationship, the possible relationship between Jesus and the, Apost the Apostle John. Uh, and it does have a, a strong paranormal element as well. So, 
Wow. Yeah. Um, now I'm curious, like, did you, uh, have you like found readings that are specifically about Jesus and John or, or have you sat and been like, Hmm, what I think maybe this is something that happened. And then. Yeah. No, it's, I didn't make it up. Um, there is, there's a long history of, of, uh, people talking about, uh, a possible gay relationship between Jesus and John. So, um, uh, there's, there's lots of writing about it. Yeah. But I, I've put my own kind of twist on it. Yeah. So when you were reading all these, like people, like basically it sounds like they were, uh, speaking upon like the psychology of these women and like, I don't know, it makes me think of like women being hysterical during this time and everything. Yeah. So did you feel like a lot of the reading you were reading was like very biased and like, uh, like male heterosexual nature. And then by you taking it, you were able to like speak for these women and also have fun with the, (laughs) what if they did, what if this really did happen? Yeah, absolutely. It seemed like a kind of symptom of the patriarchy, you know, the way that people were were talking about them. Um, but also, I just found it interesting that they reported having this this time slip, you know, where they saw things, um, you know, that were from the time of Marie Antoinette, you know, when when they were living in 1900. Yeah, yeah. D- specifically, did one come forward or did they both come forward? Because at the end, it kind of it felt like Eleanor was like, you know, resigned and like, no one's going to believe us. And yeah. Yeah. That was all, that was all just an invention of mine. They both wrote about it, um, though they did separate, uh, you know, because of this experience, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure, but. Uh, it definitely they, they, will they just... test a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Having a time Um Yeah. So it was just kind of, you know, something that I found really interesting to kind of play around with and explore. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, so. Uh, have there been any other like historical time periods that you've uh, written about? Uh, a lot. That, you have yeah. Jesus and John, and then yeah. <laughs> Marie um, Antoinette. Yeah. So my first novel, uh, The White Forest, is set in the 19th century, um, and then I have another novel that is coming out after Jesus and John um, that's about Edwardian ghost hunters. Uh, so. Yeah, and it also has a queer protagonist. So. Uh huh. Do you find when you uh, decide to take on like a new time period you haven't written before, is there a lot of like research you do to like get to know that world or? Yeah, like, how did, it's how, what is that? It's like? kind of it's kind of awful actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not really sure why I put myself through it, but I'll just I just find it very interesting. I'll pick different uh, you know, time periods and just dive into it. Um, I make notebooks uh where I have lists of things like clothing, um household goods, uh, you know, all kinds of lists where I can just go for details. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, Adam, sorry. I I I had a question. I'm like jumping out of my skin to ask do you uh when you write about a different time period does that do you adapt your writing style to like like to the time period at all or do you sort of just feel like you you kind of travel to these different times as as a writer i guess you know i don't know if you were in a more stuck up like uh time period you might write more formally or something i don't know yeah well yeah i think i do adapt to the period 
Um, so the White Forest does feel to some degree, you know, that's my first novel that was set in the 19th century, and it does feel to some degree like a pastiche of a 19th century novel. Um, Jesus and John, I had to decide how that would sound uh, because I wanted it to sound vaguely biblical, but not too biblical. So I adopted this really kind of plain language um, which I thought I could use to kind of deliver. Uh, it feels very stark, um, which seemed to fit, you know, in terms of tone for me. I love that. Okay, and then one more question from me. Uh, do you yourself believe in paranormal things? Do you believe in ghosts? <laughs> do you stuff like that? <laughs> um, honestly, no, except, so my answer to this question is always no. But then my boyfriend and I were in San Francisco uh, recently, and we had an experience that was really weird. Wow. <laughs> so, like a kind of ghostly, uh, ghostly experience. So I'm not, I, I still don't believe, but I did have, I have a ghost story now. So mm. it's very interesting. Um, uh, yeah. And then I guess uh, my last question is when you are writing a novel, it does sound like there's a lot of prep you know, just researching the time period and everything. Um, when you get to the actual writing of the novel, does it just flow or do you feel like you have it's you have to like stop and uh I don't I guess a lot of writers we've talked to, it's like a different beast and they have their own personal struggles. So I was curious if by doing all that prep do you feel like when it gets to writing the novel it's easier? Yeah, it's <laughs> I think it's kind of, you have to prepare, but then as you write, you will run into a lot of things where you need a detail or you need to know how something works in that time period where you just basically have to go and look it up. So it's really like you can only prepare so much. Um, and it's, it's actually very irritating because they are, they're just very small things, you know, just daily things of daily life. Um, and there are some great books out there, you know, like the Time Traveler's Guide to Victorian England, where, you know, they just basically set you down and tell you about, you know, what it was like in a household and things like that. But but those are the kind of details that you need. So I do find myself constantly scrambling, um, you know, to build that world and make it seem not like something that comes from a movie, you know, that I've seen in a movie, but something that is um, more lived and authentic. Wow. Um and then I guess I have to ask, do you want to share your ghost story or is that a personal? <laughs> I feel like listeners will be like yelling at us if we don't ask. <laughs> right, 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 right. Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the ghost story. Um, okay. So we were staying um, at the Sir Francis Drake Hotel in San Francisco. And um, I am, again, very into the paranormal, so I always try to look up if, you know, where I'm staying is haunted or anything like that. And of course, it being a very old hotel, um, it is haunted. Uh, so we watched, it was the last night um, that we were staying there and we watched a bunch of YouTube clips of just people doing ghost hunting in the hotel and things to try to try to get ourselves scared, you know. And then we went to sleep. And in the middle of the night, I woke up and there was a figure um, just kind of standing right next to the bed, right? So right next to where I was sleeping. And I know that sometimes, you know, you can kind of half wake up, um, you know, and you're still actually sleeping and you see things. 
Um, you know, so I attributed it to that. I thought, oh, this is actually nothing. Um, you know, but it was a very kind of very dark form. Uh, and the other weird thing about it was that it didn't appear to have a neck. So its head just kind of went right down into its shoulders. Um, so then I closed my eyes and I went back to sleep. That was fine. Uh, and the next morning I woke up and I, I turned and my boyfriend uh, is looking at me and he's, he looks kind of weird. And I'm like, what's wrong? And he was like, well, I didn't want to wake you up in the night. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he was like, well, I saw something um, standing over in the corner, he said, right? And he described him as looking like he was wearing chain mail, which if you were wearing chain mail, it would appear that your head was like fused to your kind of shoulders, right? That kind of drape of the chain. So he said that he too thought, well, I'll just kind of look away from the thing, right? So he looked away, like he tilt, my boyfriend tilted his own head um, to look away and that the thing kind of crept forward so that it would still be in his field of vision. Oh no. <laughs> so I, I found that very strange because then we both had incidents yeah. you know, that matched. And like same night and That everything. was so weird. Yeah. Totally. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Interesting. Oh. Spooky. <laughs> awesome. Um, and then is there anything you want to plug or any like websites or like Twitter or anything you want to like guide our listeners to check your work out? Yeah, just, you know, I'm, what I'm really wanting to plug is just my new novel that's coming out in June 2020. So it's Jesus and John. Um, that's basically it. Stories But Shorter is produced by Jeremy Schmidt and hosted by me, Cassie Jerkins. Have you ever encountered an unexplained hairy bipedal hominid in the woods? Have you received telepathic messages from an unidentified aerial phenomenon? If so, then you need to listen to Bigfoot Collectors Club. I'm Michael McMillan. And I'm Bryce Johnson. And together with super producer... Riley Bray. We make up the Bigfoot Collectors Club. That's right. Every week we talk to actors, comedians, writers, and paranormal experts about their personal paranormal histories and share stories of high strangeness. Like the time when we talked to Craig Ferguson about the Loch Ness Monster and when a sea witch told him he had raven magic. Or the time I asked Pitch Perfect's Anna Camp her opinion on cattle mutilations. Past guests have included Rachel Bloom, Jen Kirkman, Paul F. Tompkins, Bobcat Goldthwait, and more. So if you've ever been abducted alongside five reindeer by an alien with grills for hands, or witnessed Bigfoot crawl out of an interdimensional portal, don't laugh, happens all the time. Then check out Bigfoot Collectors Club on Campfire Media or wherever you get your podcasts. Bigfoot, Bigfoot Collectors Club, you're, you're here to, to believe, believe us. Wait, is that how it goes? Campfire.